Hello there, this is our weekly podcast, a compilation of our best interviews from the last week, all in the one place. On Monday, I spoke to Rosemary Murphy, mother of 12 from Dolphins Barn in Dublin, about her drive, determination and her dream to get into medical school. On Tuesday, Elaine Reynolds, Executive Officer with the Trinity Access Programme, came into studio to talk to us about her working life, growing up and the honorary masters she recently received from Trinity. On Wednesday, Brian Merriman and Sam Byrne were in. Brian is the founder of the International Dublin Gay Theatre Festival and Sam is a pastoral minister. We discussed the event called Service of Belonging that took place as part of Pride 2023, where a member of the gay community were invited to address the Catholic congregation in Dublin and express his views of their church. On Thursday, Catherine McCormick, she's an assistant coordinator and mentor of Living Histories with Dublinia, that great museum. And she joined us to chat about her job at Dublinia, the museum experience today, and what Dublin was like during the Viking era. And on Friday, Harry Havlin, Freddie Snow and Roddy Doyle joined us to bring us into the evocative era of printing in Dublin, the history and the craftsmanship, and their new book, Strange Types and Odd Sorts, A Peek into the World, Print in Ireland. And that's it. Thanks a million for listening. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> it's 51551. That's the text number. It's Oliver Callan here. And Rosemary Murphy is across me in the studio. Good morning to you, Rosemary Murphy. And come on in beside us to the microphone there and be nice and cosy. Morning. Um, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And thank you for taking the time because I don't know how I don't know how you have the time. We'll get into that. Well, tell us your, your story. This is a story about, I was saying just before the break, pursuit of dreams um, and kind of no, never giving up. But, exactly. but we'll set the context because you're, you're, you're a Dublin woman. You're living uh, in... I'm living in Lucan County, Dublin. Yes. And I'm a mum to 12, 12 children yeah. and a very patient, fabulous husband. <laughs> I grew up kind of in Dublin 8, a very working class area. I was an only yep. child. I'm an only child myself. Oh, you're an only child? I'm an only child. I went on okay. to have 12 children. I've always wanted a big family. And I've also always wanted to kind of pursue third level education and study medicine. So I had to kind of find a way to fit everything in. You did. And the, the 12 children, can you give us a, a range of ages currently? Yep, they range in age from 20 down to 17 months. So it's a busy house, organised chaos, I like to call it. But you know what? I love it. Wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, yeah. busy house is kind of, uh, I think, the understatement of, of, the, of the day. Um, I mean, I don't want to treat you like you're a freak or anything with 12 yeah, children, but you're like, a, you're a young woman with 12 kids. Thanks very much. You know, uh, and your husband, Stephen, mm-hmm. obviously you, you both wanted uh, this for your lives. We did. We both wanted a big family. I was a single mum for a, mi- a bit before I met my husband. I had my daughter. Yeah. Then I met him when she was nearly two. She's, I, was, I was 22 when I met him, so she was nearly two. Lovely. And then we both wanted a big family. We both gelled really well. Stephen adopted my girl, so she's his daughter. We don't do step, I think she's his daughter. Brilliant. And then we went on to have all our other fabulous children and... Now we have our busy house and we love it. You do. And, and what does Stephen do? Stephen's an electrician. Yeah, busy so, gig. Busy, yeah, busy. We're both busy. But I think if you really want to do something enough, you'll make it work. That's yeah, about it. Th- that's what you're going to kind of teach us, I think, this morning. Possibly. Um, <laughs> what, what was it? Let's go back into your education history then. So you, you grew up in Dolphins Barn. I did, I did. I had a very working class area, but a fabulous area. Like I had a great childhood. I left school after my junior cert. I loved school. I was really interested in history and English, but I felt socially I didn't fit in. You know, as a teenager, life is, look, life is hard. Yeah. So I ended up leaving. I worked various jobs in retail. 
I kind of, I did a diploma in in legal studies. I did a diploma in Montessori teaching. I did courses I was interested in, like acting. Had a brief stint of wanting to be an actress, which right. passed. <laughs> I can see it. Which passed, right? Yeah, yeah. But the one that stayed was medicine. From age six, I wanted to do medicine, watching Casually growing up. What? Why? So it was watching, watching Casually? That's what got me into it. And then as I grew older, I could really appreciate how science can combine to improve healthcare and how you can make a difference to people. What I love about medicine is the variety it offers because you're using knowledge, you're using clinical skills and you're working with people. I think you have to love working with people, which I do. So it was just a combination of those things. And that's why I wanted to pursue it. When you, I'm curious to know what was going through Rosemary Murphy, six-year-old Rosemary Murphy's head when you're going, right, this is my thing. I was there. I was watching my casualty. I was like, I want to be a doctor. Now I'll be an actress on the side. I'll combine the two. It'll be great. It'll be brilliant. And then just the medicine just never left me. I was just always fascinated with the human body, with like accidents, with what happens to people's bodies, what makes them sick, why that happens, just the whole thing. It was just a fascination that's been there my whole life. Like just the career of lifelong learning, that's what appeals to me. And when you, the, the appeal of lifelong learning, but it was just to jump back into school a small bit, because you're like obviously a very bubbly person, you had ambitions and so on. But when you say that you weren't, you know, very social or, or school didn't really socially kind of work for you, what do you mean by that in your teenage? I just felt like I didn't fit in, you know, I okay. wasn't like the pretty girl or I wasn't like popular, but I got on with everyone, like all my school friends were lovely. It was just that. I was self-conscious, but I wasn't the person I am today. I wasn't like, I don't care what people think of me now. I'm going to do what I want and people can think what they like. I wasn't like that then. Nobody I was is thinking like, teenager. You know, people like us from world class area, we don't become doctors. Like it was seen as a profession for the middle classes, which mm-hmm. is kind of a shame. Yeah. But I just wanted to do it and I knew it probably wouldn't be an easy route. So I just was like, later in life. I'll go, I'll get some work experience, I'll travel. I was a big Celine Dion fan, so I travelled to see her all over the world. (laughs) Canada, America, France, London, and I loved it. Like, Uh I have no regrets about what I did. Do I wish I had pursued third level education earlier in my life? Yes. But then I wouldn't have had all the experiences I've had now. Maybe I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be as ambitious, as driven and as determined. Maybe you just wouldn't have been ready for it. Maybe I wasn't ready. Like, not everyone is ready for third level education outside of school. I just felt I didn't want to be in the school environment. I wanted to be at work and earning my own money I wanted experience and I wanted to have kids I wanted to have a house so in some ways you could say I did it backwards to most people like I bought the house got married had kids and now I'm trying to pursue now I'm trying to pursue a career which I hope would be successful So when did you decide to go back into education? So I started looking at it, I'd say about 11 or 12 years ago. Yeah. Now I bought all the bits to do my leave and cert and the HPAT which you need to get into medicine but honestly, it scared me. I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this now at this stage. Wow. So we got busy with having more kids and with a busy house and we were loving our life. And I said, I'll come back to it, I'll come back to it. So this come back mm. to it, kept going. Yeah. And then in 2018, I found the UCD Access course, which I enrolled for in the 2019, 2020 academic year. So the Access course is a replacement for Leaving Cert. So it allows access to education mm-hmm. for people who don't have those qualifications to matriculate for courses like medicine. So I did the access course, absolutely loved it. Yeah. And I applied to medicine four times. Right. Because it's very difficult it's to very, get in, It's isn't very it? competitive. You have to persevere. You have to keep going. Mm-hmm. You have to keep going back and saying, this is what I want to do. Hi, I'm here. I want my place and I'm going to keep going until I get my place. That's the mindset you have to have. It's grueling. Like, let's be honest. It's a very hard process. It's very emotionally, psychologically, it's very hard mm-hmm. and you have to be prepared for it. And I think I was when I went into it. 
So when I applied, applied the first two times, didn't get anywhere. Applied the third time, I'd had a C-section a few weeks before. Okay. I applied to only one college, thinking, I'm not going to get this. This is going to do the HPAT for the experience. Yeah. I got enough of my HPAT. I got through to submitting my CV, my personal statements, and I didn't get called for interview. And it was so hard. It was the disappointment was so hard. Okay, so what 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 is the kind of process you you have to complete this HPAT? So, yeah, so um, you apply, which, which is a it's a, it's an exam or a it's, course. It's an exam. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's the healthcare professionals admissions test. It's a tough tough. It's exam. a tough test. It's pegged as an aptitude test. I think it's a skill that you improve on with time as opposed to an aptitude test myself. I yeah. think I've shown that I've improved on it each of the four times I've done it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a test you have to do. But basically, you apply through the CAO in November. Mm-hmm. Then you do your HPAT in February. For mature candidates, your HPAT score comes out around April time. Okay. And then it varies. Now, it varies a bit from college to college, but I'm going to speak about RCSI yeah. because that's what I'm most familiar the with. Royal College of the Royal Surgeons, college of Surgeons Ireland. in Ireland, yes. So, for them, when the HPAT comes out, they invite candidates over a certain score to submit their documents. So your documents are your personal statement, your CV, that kind of thing. And then from the document stage, they cut candidates, they invite candidates to interview. So say, I don't know how many documents to get, but say they might invite 20 or 30 candidates to interview. So it's hugely competitive. So I didn't get to that stage on my third application. So then I'll just quickly skip ahead. Once you do no, your well, after the third application, how were you feeling? Were you thinking this is the end? I was no, I was very disappointed, and I yeah. took a few days to you know sit with that disappointment, and I acknowledged it, and I shared it because it's important to to share the times that don't work out as much as it's important to share success. Like you have to share it all. I think. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, so you mean I did. With, your, with your family and, and friends, and on so Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter. <laughs> okay. So I shared it with those. I got a lot of yeah. support, and I knew I was going to pick myself back up. So what I did, I got up. That, sorry, was that a good story about Twitter? <laughs> you got encouragement. I love Twitter. I know it gets a bad rep, <laughs> but my God, there's such a supportive community on Twitter as well. I've gotten so much support. I've made so many connections through it. So yeah, not going to bad mouth it. Yeah. But yeah, so, the, so and was that really important that kind of encouragement? Yeah. And it's important for me as well, like to write about like how I felt and what mm-hmm. it was. And so someone else might see it and go, "Well, she didn't get it, and she's not giving up, so I won't give up either. I'll keep going." Yeah. So I came, I came back to fight again anyway. She so came in fourth time. I came in fourth time after I didn't get in fourth time. I emailed RCSI and I said, "Look." I really want my place. What can I do to make my application better? And they, they were amazing, so supportive. And they came back and said, well, you know, a lot of people have clinical experience that you don't have. And oh, like, I see, yeah. So what I did was I went away. I did a healthcare assistant course in the Liberties College. Of course you did, another, just casually with your 12 children. <laughs> as, as you do. Another amazing experience. Like it was oh. such, my classmates were amazing. My tutors were amazing. They're all really supportive of me wanting to go for a career in medicine. So yeah, I loved the course, great. And it gave me that clinical exposure. Yeah. And it was such a privilege to be involved in patient care as well. I did my placement in the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin. Oh, did you? Okay. Where I had but... most of my babies. <laughs> so it was really special to me. Like, they know you by name in My Rotunda else. family, they do, of course. And so <laughs> many of them inspire me so much. So yeah, I loved being there. And then as I was doing the course, I was also applying to medicine for the fourth time. I was yeah. doing my personal statement. I was doing all that while doing the course. So yeah, I had a bit on, but you know. We get there. You do it. You have to do it. I and feel uh, like there was a whole wave of people in the background yeah, just cheering. There is. Cheering my fabulous Rosen. husband, my kids, my family, the people on Twitter, the people who have mentored me and supported me. I'm so grateful. To them. I won't name because there's too many of them, but they know who they are and they know how grateful I am to them for their support. And I couldn't have done it without them. 
So the fourth time in you do your H pat. Do my H pat, yes. You're getting through that again. Getting through that again, yeah. Kind of like, you know, we're kind of friends now, so we're all good. Did my H pat, got enough on the H pat, got to document stage, submitting my very personal, personal statement. And that's the one thing with the statement. It was mine. Was it perfect? No, it was not. But mm. it was my personal statement. It was about my life, my experience. It was a, a written statement. Written statement, it? yeah. yeah. I have my CV with all my academic achievements, all other stuff I've done. And then documents went in, then the wait begins. And I was actually picking out a dress for my graduation in Liberties when I got the email to say I've been shortlisted for interview. Wow. So I made the illicit interview stage this time. So one step closer. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That's, that's to be celebrated. But still not over the line. But we're getting there. We're getting there. So I had my interview for CSI. And I have to say, they were so lovely, so nice. Like, obviously, it is very high pressure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot on it. And I always said, if I got the interview stage, I could convince them that they wanted me to come to RCSI. <laughs> Not being arrogant, but it's just, I have such a passion for medicine. Yeah. I know it's what I want to do. I know how hard it is. And I still want to pursue it because that's all I want to do. So I went into the interview. I felt I had a great rapport with them, but I was a bit disappointed that I didn't showcase all my knowledge. Because, you know, after all these years, I have a lot of knowledge on RCSI. <laughs> so I went away thinking, yeah, I got on good. But did I do great? Did I show all my knowledge? Did I show how much I know, how much I love RCSI? I don't know. Okay. So I went away for the week's wait. So it was a week's wait between finding out whether it was oh, a yes or a no. Torture, yeah. Yeah, torture. Very stressful, very psychologically stressful. Mm. And you're checking your emails on refresh and you're like, when is this coming in? <laughs> so the email came and I just seen the heading RCSI and I was like, click. But I clicked and I initially couldn't see anything because all you see is the RCSI logo and there was an attachment on it. And I was like, my brain didn't function to think, open oh, the attachment. So I, sc- <laughs> I walked away from the laptop, came back, scrolled down the email and I seen it was a yes. Wow. I got my place. Yeah. You've been accepted into yeah, the prestigious Royal years. College of Surgeons yeah. of Ireland. Amazing medical school. Like, I just, I still can't believe it. it's been such a whirlwind. It's just <sighs> unreal. Like, well, I you, still, oh, unreal. You've conveyed the tornado really yeah. well this morning. And congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> At one stage there, I didn't think you were going to make it. It's the, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a good news, uh, but it's not the end. It's not the end. No, it's only the start of a very... It's the end of the application process. Yep. It's the start. It's, I mean, I got there, but it's the start of another very long, hard process. I know it's going to be hard work, but I'm going to get to the end of the six years. And I'm oh, going to graduate. Six years? I'm doing the six year. Now, there is a five-year programme as well and then a four-year programme for graduates, but I don't have a degree. I don't even have a leave cert. I have my access course. So I'm doing the six-year programme to give me that foundation in the sciences and help me get settled into university to third-level education. So I, I can't wait. I would have taken the 26-year programme. Never mind the six-year <laughs> programme. I'm just delighted to be getting in. And I know it's going to be hard work, but I know I'll walk that stage in six years' time graduating and going into medicine. And I hope the people in North CSI that opened that door for me, I hope they're going to be proud. And I hope oh, I, think I won't let them down. <laughs> I think they will. And it's nice that you're visualising that moment in six years. Yeah, six years oh, you have to. It's all about eyes on the prize, isn't it? Yeah, and no leaving cert. So it's not a, it's not no. a barrier if you don't it's have that. It's not a barrier, You can go to the very no. top of, of the education Absolutely. system. Absolutely. So you have like the access course in UCD. Trinity also have an access course. Now, there are ones outside Dublin I'm not, I'm not familiar with, but there are access to education courses. So if you don't have a leaving cert and you're interested in it, definitely look into access courses. So the one I did was mm. access to science, engineering, agriculture, medicine that's the one I did and I'd highly recommend it, it gives you a great base and pretty much everything so yeah highly recommend it 
Um, you said there at the beginning because you, you always thought that oh, I, I'll never get into medicine because I'm from Dolphins Barn in yeah. Dublin and it's a very middle class sort of a thing. But in your adventures in the last couple of years, um, have you found that's the case or is it is it much more open? No, it is. There are working class people. There are people from all backgrounds in medicine. You don't often see like publicly like doctors that can't come from backgrounds like mine. Yeah. But I think they do exist. There are people in their 30s, 40s, 50s studying medicine. There are people from working class areas. There are international students. Medicine is for everyone. Mm-hmm. If you have a passion for patient-centred care, if medicine is what you want to do, then you should go for it. You don't have to be from an affluent background or sound a certain way or look a certain way. You just have to be willing to work hard, make the few sacrifices along the way and go for it. Like... 100%. 100%. I have no regrets. It's a kind of a historical thing, isn't it? it was yeah. th- these courses were, were never free. So yeah. they were hugely expensive law and medicine and that's kind of where and those I think kind of we have gotten are. better in Ireland. It is yeah. more. Education is more accessible. We yeah. have we have more knowledge. There's more kind of support for people from all backgrounds to get into all courses, not just medicine. Medicine is still quite elite though. We still could do with making it more diverse, have a more mature, more mature places, you know, more access for mature students yeah. as well. Like I feel I did the work to get the place. But I also feel I was very lucky that I got my chance when I did and I'm very grateful for But what I would say to anyone who wants to do is just keep going until you get there and you will, you will get there. One of, in RCSI, the admissions officer, she said to me, if you really want medicine, you'll get it. And on the hard days, I kept thinking of that. Very good. So it was just, it's just that mindset. Just a simple sentence. Yeah, just a simple sentence. It's that mindset to think that you know, it will happen. And the people that support me, I had amazing people like doctors, medical students, and they said to me, like, you'll make a great doctor, you know, keep going, you'll get there. And they they could believe in me as just, as an older mature student, as a working class girl, as a mum, I used to be a single mum, now a married mum, you know, just I'm just mm. a normal person. If they could believe in me, then I can believe in myself as well and push <laughs> to actually achieve it. It's like, achieve your things or Rosemary Murphy will be after you. <laughs> Um, after the six years, what what what's what's the plan? So after the six years, I'll do an intern year as a doctor working in hospitals or whatever. Yeah. And then I don't know really what after that will be kind of the specialty you want yeah, to go special, into. Yeah. At the moment, I do have an interest. So at the moment, I'm very interested in obstetrics and gynecology, mm-hmm. which is a long training process, hugely competitive. But you know what? My age doesn't define me. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to pursue what I want at the end. Mm-hmm. So m- maybe I'll change my mind what I want to do when I get involved in the medical education process. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm going to pursue the specialty I want. At the moment, I foresee that as being obstetrics and gynaecology. But down the line, when I go into my placements, I'm going to go into each one thinking, this is an area of medicine I might work in in the future. So I'm going to give it everything 100%. You um, put no limits on yourself No limits, whatsoever. no. No. Like I said, I'm a mum. That doesn't, it's a very important part of who I am. Yeah. It doesn't define me. I'm an older student. That also doesn't define me. It's part of my journey. I think what I bring to the table is life experience and just pure determination and passion to do medicine and to give excellent patient-centred care. That's what I bring to it. I might not have flashy academics, but I have a lot to offer. <laughs> well, you do now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. And uh, also because you were saying like it's hard to get into medicine, but that's almost referencing mm. to somebody young who, who are single and don't have any children. But none of those th- things, being married and have lungs, no. loads, 12 children was a, was a barrier to you at all. No, no I want... I want to do what I want to do and I think if you want to do it, like I said, you'll find a way to do it. I wanted to have a big family, did that. Want to study medicine, now I'm going to do that. I don't think we should put limits on ourselves. If we want to do something, we're going to find a way to make that happen. And like maybe it's not going to happen at the time you think it's going to happen. It might be later. Like I said, I'd love to have got into medicine earlier. 
well, if I didn't, I wouldn't have had, the, if I'd had gotten in earlier, I mean, I would have, I wouldn't have had the experience with liberties. I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have met as many amazing people like through Twitter or whatever. So yeah. I had the journey I was meant to have and I'm really grateful for every step along the way. You told um, Deirdre Falvey in the Irish Times on Saturday that uh, you were always the last one standing on a night out. I tell you one thing, <laughs> I may be studying with 17 and 18 year olds, but I would be the last one standing on a night out. You cannot beat my... I have such resilience. I'm so like, I feel like I'm about 19. I don't feel like I'm, we won't say the age will be now. No, well, you, told, you told the Irish Times. <laughs> I know, yeah. But I was trying to convince her to cut 10 years off, but she wouldn't like, <laughs> I know I'm joking, Deirdre's amazing. It was a pleasure to talk to her. But yeah, that's the one thing now. I can't lie about my age anymore. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, you kind of give it away at the start there. We won't force you on to that because it says it's not a barrier to anything. It's not a barrier to anything. No, I have as much energy as they do. Rosemary, there's loads of lovely messages coming in and people saying, <laughs> I read your interview of the weekend and punching the air with delight since. I wish you every success. She's an inspiration, says D in Cork. Um, I feel so proud of Rosemary. She's from my own neighbourhood who's going to medical school. And I really look forward to becoming her colleague in the future from Dr. JB in Rialto. Huge congrats. You will make a huge difference in the medical community with your beautiful, generous spirit and your inspiring intelligence. Also, make sure to join uh, women, W-I-M-I-N, Women in Medicine Ireland, support yeah. and advocacy for women medics that promotes diversity and inclusion. That's hugs from Dr. J. Uh, we totally admire your interviewee, passionate, driven, with such a hard course. I can't imagine doing it with ch- 12 children. How did she manage? Says this texter. Well, I mean, we've, we've heard, we've heard how you just kept going and you have to be well done. I'd love to know how Rosemary juggles childcare, study, home and if she ever sleeps, I'm in awe. <laughs> No, she doesn't. She even has time to go out, which is, seems impossible. What an amazing young mother and inspiration. Please tell her to read the book Into the Magic Shop. A similar true story to hers, uh, says John. The, 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 these books will be for your retirement, I presume, when you actually have uh, the chance to sit down and read them. Um, there's so many messages coming in. As your wonderful guest, has your wonderful guest, Rosemary, any fears that she won't be happy fit in like she felt in school? Well, that's an interesting question, but you're shaking your head. Absolutely not. No, I'm a different person now. You know, mm. if people like me, they like me. If they don't, that's OK as well. I'm going to go in and I'm going to hopefully get on with everyone. If I don't get on with everyone, I'll find a circle of friends. It doesn't bother me being different now. I'm there on my journey. They have different skills and challenges. I have different skills and challenges, but we're all, we're all colleagues together. And I got on amazingly well with everyone in Liberties, and I'm sure it'll be the same in RCSI. <laughs> and I pride myself on being very supportive. So maybe I can support younger students who are coming in to third level for the first time as well. Yeah. They'll be learning from you. Yeah. the fellow students uh, Rosemary for president is this one uh, I'd like to say that lady bravo 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 fabulous lady says Martin and there's loads, loads of messages I've it's got unbelievable. amazing amazing support since the yeah. article and I'm so grateful to each and every person who has messaged or commented on the article and you know I make it work with childcare and that because I have an amazing supportive husband and family and people that support me and I prioritise what has to be done now what can wait you know I just I make it happen because I have to Stephen the spark yeah, he's, he's amazing. Uh, and every one of them. And you, your kids are obviously, uh, 12 of them, going to be easily encouraged. They're so be... proud. You know, I think it's really important for them, especially my daughters, to see their mum pursuing what she wants to do. Like, I can't tell them, go after your dreams. You can be anything if I don't do it myself. So they have, to, they're coming on the journey with me. We're all in it yeah. together. We're one big team. And they're cheering you along. They're as well, cheering me along, yeah. yeah. Someone asked, please ask Rosemary what her children think of her, asked Tim, but you just told us. Listen, it's an amazing story, and thanks, Amelia, Thank for taking you. the time to come in and share it with us, Rosemary Murphy. And uh, good luck in medical school. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you with that scroll in, in, in the... We'll do an update in six years. Yeah, we? Know, and we, and we can decide on the specialty then as well to see if I stuck with my obstetrics and gynaecology passion. Yeah. <laughs> and enjoy every um, night uh, uh, night out in between oh, where you'll be the last person. 
Stop. I know, but that's the thing. I'm going to enjoy every stage. I'm going to enjoy being a medical student. I'm going to enjoy being an intern. And hopefully I'm going to enjoy being a doctor. <laughs> it's brilliant. And uh, that Saturday Irish Times article is still online, so you can enjoy that as well. Listen, Rosemary Murphy, we'll say good morning to you. And we wish you ever look. And thanks a million for, for giving us all a good big lift this thanks, morning. Thanks for having me as your guest. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rosemary. Good, good morning to you. You're very welcome in with us. Now I'm here in studio with Elaine Reynolds. You're welcome to you. Good, good morning. She's the Executive Officer with the Trinity Access Programme. Good morning, I am Elaine. indeed. Thank you. And um, you've been at Trinity College most of your working life. That's correct. I have. I'm there 27 years. Brilliant. 27. Started in um, March 1996. 1996. It was a lovely summer. Lovely summer. Oh in the God, 90s. I don't remember much. I would have been working hard, so I definitely yeah, don't I remember work, uh, much of it anyway. You got a special award a couple of weeks ago in recognition of what you've done for the college and Trinity and the students and everyone you meet every day. Uh, so when so tw- 1996, what 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 was going on in your life in 1996? Um, well, I was raising two children, putting them through school and college, and I was looking for a job and. A friend of mine was in the housekeeping in Trinity at the time mm-hmm. and she said, God, Elaine, I think they're, they're looking for part-time uh, staff for the summer. So I kind of said, God, I wonder would you be able to get me in? So she got me an application. So I got the application. Then I got the interview. So I was given the part-time job and I loved it. And the day yeah. I went into Trinity, I loved it. I was a bit apprehensive going in because I was thinking, oh my God, like, you know, when you go into Trinity, you think you're supposed to be so... Kind of like, you know, intelligent and all. and It's an intimidating kind of place, isn't it? It, it is and it isn't. It mm. is. I don't know why... At your first kind of At your first, outside, but yeah. kind of when you go in and you kind of see people and you're meeting people, you realise, God, this is a lovely place. This is great. Everybody here is lovely. So, yeah, no, I loved it. From the day I started, I loved it. And then... And what were you doing in Trinity? I was uh, housekeeping. Yeah. I was cleaning and kind of getting up early in the morning, going in, doing a job, coming home, raising children kind of just getting on with life yeah. you know but I always wanted to kind of like do more mm-hmm. I always loved learning loved the whole environment I used to love to be honest I used to go into the office clean the office and it'd have shelves of books yeah. and I'd be opening the books looking over my shoulder to make sure nobody seen that I wasn't working and I'd be flicking <laughs> through the pages I you see. know and I remember actually the first I, I sh- shouldn't say this on air but I did there was a book called um, it was about Hiroshima yeah and it was a real tin book. And mm. I used to clean the same office every day. So every day I'd go in and read one or two pages. Oh, you read a little bit every every time? Every day and I'd just put it back in the same place hoping <laughs> nobody would notice that I took it. <laughs> and you bumped into a woman called Sheila Flood. I did, Actually, I was cleaning in the Trinity Access programmes and there was a lady in the office. Her name was Sheila, a lovely lady. Mm. And we just struck up friendship. And it's a friendship I still have today and I really value Sheila's friendship. And... We just got talking one day and she said to me, you know, kind of asking me about my life. And I was saying, God, yeah, now I have two kids and I'm after getting a computer into the house and I'm doing computer course because I was after paying a thousand pound for this thing in the corner. Yeah. And I said, this is a very expensive ornament. Yeah. So I went and done a few courses and then I got talking to Sheila and Sheila said to me, God, she said, you're doing a course. That's amazing. And would you like to come and work for us? And I said, no. And she said, <laughs> Why? And I said, Jesus, I barely know the alphabet. Because I expected, like, I thought she thought I was just, you know, super intelligent person. And she encouraged me. So I wouldn't give up the housekeeping. Mm-hmm. So I used to go into her for a couple of hours every day after the housekeeping. Wow. And I'd help out with kind of photocopying and filing. And I mean, 
talk about kind of being given an opportunity. I mean, they really gave me an opportunity. Incredible. You know. What was your kind of uh, education and history up to this point, if I can ask that? Uh, basically none, because I would have left school kind of very young and kind of lied about my age, got a job, mm. and then had to leave that job because they were looking for all the credentials like taxing and things like that. Oh, yeah. So I left the you job. You were too young. I was too young. I shouldn't have been working. I was too young. But I lied about my age. And How young were you? I was about 13. Oh, really? Yeah, I was about 13. And I kind of, the first job I got was in a lovely place. And the, the boss of the place was lovely. And he kept asking me, though, for me tax certs. Oh, yeah, yeah. He wanted to do everything, obviously, by the book. And I kept saying, yeah, no, I'll get it next week. No, I'll definitely get it. But I had to leave. Had to leave because he, he kept saying to me, look, I can't let you continue working. So I left and just got what myself another at, job. What was the job at 13? The job was a place, it was in Mount Mines and it was a place that used to refurbish old books. So again, really? I loved books. Yeah. Even though I was had barely could read. I could barely read, but I loved books. But they used to refurbish the books. And I worked there, I only worked there for about, I'd say about 10 weeks. Then I had to leave, but I was writing because it was a great job. So then I kind of just filtered in and out of sewing factories and anything I could really work at really, to be honest. You know, you said you could you could barely uh, read, but I, you were drawn left, to books. Isn't I that loved, amazing? I always loved books. I loved the escapism, but I wasn't like as well as kind of not only knowing how to read, like the comprehension, kind of understanding what you were reading. Mm -hmm. So kind of what happened was I went and I had obviously I had children, but then when they started going to school, they were coming home with their homework. Yeah. And they'd, they'd be asking me for advice and I'd be saying, my God, I could barely read what they were reading. And I was saying, this has to change. I have to do something. So I remember kind of the oldest girl. She was really good. She was always, she, she loved learning. And I was delighted with that. And I was saying, no, I'm going to really do my best to keep, these, keep her in that mode. So I went to her teacher and I said to her teacher, I said, look, I said, I have to be honest. I said, I'm not very good. I said, at reading and writing. I said, I don't have the skills. I said, and but I don't want that to affect her. Yeah. I want to encourage her and help her. So she, we came up with a plan. So she used to kind of give me some of the answers. Wow. So I'd go home and the, the, the little one would be doing her homework. And she'd be saying to me, is that right, ma'am? And I'd be looking at the piece of paper I had and looking at her answer. And I'd say, no, that's wrong. You'd have to do that again. <laughs> and she used to think I was super. She said to me years after, I thought you just were fantastic. I thought you knew everything. <laughs> you had the cog notes. Yeah, I had the notes. Yeah. So, so you went, um, the, the teacher encouraged you or how did you go about your, your what literacy What happened was skills? then I just kind of like, I started kind of saying, look, I need to do something. So I went and done literacy classes at night. Mm. There was a secondary school in Cabra at the time and they, well, I still did, I think they still do it. And I went to them and I asked them for help and they said, God, we do literacy classes at night. And they asked me how bad I was. And I said, look, I know nothing. I don't even know the alphabet. Mm. So they gave me a one-to-one. -one. I used to go in and a one-to-one. -one. But it transpired anyway that I knew more than I thought I knew. Yeah. And they put me into a different into a different section. So I went on and done the junior cert. Right. And, taught, and I thought I was a genius. Thought I was Albert Einstein reincarnated. So I really loved it. I that loved was, it. It was there. a confidence, wasn't it? It was. A, it, it's confidence. It and it's kind of somebody telling you, no, you actually know how to read and you know how to just... Because I was never kind of taught formally... You kind of learn it yourself. So when you learn yourself something, you, you never feel you're good at it. Mm. You feel you need to learn to kind of professionally kind of say. So I went on and I done that. And then 
after the encouragement and, you know, I kind of took a few years relaxed and kind of kept the job, but I was working in the Trinity Access Programme. Yes. So we're back and you're doing a bit of photocopying, but you're still in housekeeping. I'm still in the house, but I gave up the housekeeping because they asked me, did I want a full-time job? Wow. Again, I refused it. I said, no, there's no way. I said, I couldn't. Because I was saying, if I give up the housekeeping job and then I'm no good in the office, they're going to sack me. Then I'm going to have no job. So, but in any way... It's kind of a confidence thing. Oh, it's all confidence. It is all confidence. So eventually, anyway, I gave up the the, the housekeeping and I went full time into Trinity Access Programme. And that was the best thing I ever done. Wow. It's the best thing I ever done. Because they really taught me on the job. Trinity College and Trinity Access Programme gave me the encouragement the time they gave me their expertise and kind of taught me on the job like basically when I started I was able to type with one finger yeah. you know and then I went on to two and now I can manage with eight <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because this place that looked like a, a big granite um, b- it does, barricade yeah, absolutely. it's like, all in your head uh, it, it, do you know what it is it really is in your head because you kind of see somebody walking around you see the lecturers the professors and you kind of see, like, you know, that, oh, they don't want to talk to me. But they do. And they're so inclusive. And Trinity is so, it's it's such an environment. And it's a real inclusion. Like, even with the degrees, I mean, that's their way of recognising that, yeah, you are important. You mm. are important to Trinity. And that was brilliant. You know, yeah. like, just, you know, and I, I just can't. I can't praise Trinity College or the Trinity Access Programme enough. No, it's fantastic. And you've basically spent most... Uh, well, you spent your, your working life since... I did, in yeah. In the Trinity Access Programme. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us about that and what, what I that love does. the Trinity Access Programme. I really do because... And I tell you, because people walk in and they walk in the same way as I would have walked in mm-hmm. with this idea of, I don't belong here. And within a few weeks, they own the place. <laughs> and so they should, you know, and... Do you, you see them when they leave or, you know, they're in the place. They walk taller. Mm, yeah. You walk taller because when you've no education, you kind of, you don't have a lot of faith in yourself, yeah. even in things you speak about. But when you come into college and you you get into that environment, you, you just walk taller because you feel you're kind of, even if you don't, I mean, obviously you don't know everything, but you you have that thing that you're learning. And because you're learning, you really do, you stand you just hold your... It's a difference within yourself. Mm. It's not that people see you different, but you f- you feel different. There's a feeling that you're not good enough and then suddenly realise, look, we're all Well, we're I all am good enough. I'm the same <laughs> as every... And these people are kind of telling me that I'm yeah. good enough and that I'm, you know... It's celebrating 30 years this year. It is indeed, yeah. Who is it aimed for? Who does it help? It helps people like myself. People who haven't been given the opportunity are living in a, in a culture where going to college... Do you know, because I never met anybody that went to college and the students that come into us would be fantastic students. They just haven't been given the opportunity or for life experience has taken them on a different path. So education wasn't a priority. Mm-hmm. And then when they kind of like, they get to a stage in their life and they want more, they come in and spend a year on the foundation course. And the staff on the foundation course are just, they're fantastic. They just... The student is the priority. The student is everything. Yeah. Like, even if they come in on a bad day, the staff, they meet students and all of a sudden it's a better day. You know, because <laughs> the students make it a better day. You're the uh, you're executive officer of the Trinity Access. So you're the first person that these candidates and the students actually meet. I'd love to take... Yeah, I'd, I'd, lo- I'd love to take that, but like, <laughs> I'm not, but I would be one of them. In yeah. I'm, I work in the main office with another colleague, Anne-Marie, who's 
fantastic. And we just, we meet the students coming in and when they come in, my priority and my colleague Anne-Marie is to relax them. Because when you're relaxed, you're more yourself and you get a true sense of a person. So we, they'd come in to us and they'd be talking to us and say, do you think the foundation course is for us? And here we are. Of course it is. Yeah. Get that application in. And then we just say, if you're not in, you can't win. It's like the lotto. <laughs> Get your okay. application in. And then you'd, be give, you'd say to them, have a cup of tea, just relax. You're going in to talk to somebody and they're just like yourself. They're, you're not here to be caught out on anything. They just want to get a sense of your purpose. And, yeah. You know, so it really... Just you're a great person to me for, in those circumstances. Ah, get a cup of tea. Get a cup of tea. Get a cup of tea into you. <laughs> cup of tea solves everything. <laughs> We've got lovely messages in here. Congratulations, Elaine. You're an integral part of uh, the uh, TAP. Do you call it TAP? Trinity? We call it TAP, the Trinity yeah, Access Trinity. Programs. Yeah. You're always there for the students to listen to us and help us in any way you can. TAP is fantastic. I'm a mature student going into my final year and the people in TAP have always been there to help me through my, uh, help me through my time in college. The best decision I ever made was applying for the foundation course in the Trinity Access Programme. It's transformed my life. That's from Ailish, uh, who's in the History and Political Science yeah. in Trinity yeah. College, Dublin. Now, an awful lot of students would recognise me and remember me, but because I'm getting old and I just say, <laughs> well, I do, I do recognise, I never forget a face, but the names come in and go out. But I was just saying, a few years ago, I had a brother who was seriously ill and he was in St. James's Hospital and he was getting radiation treatment and I went over and we were he was in the wheelchair and we were getting ready for his treatment. Yeah. And the amount of past students who are doctors, nurses, in James's of hospital course, to yes. have came through the Trinity Access programme. I was so proud. I felt like a mother. I kept saying to my brother, who was dying of cancer at the time, kept saying, I, we used to kind of give them a cup of tea. Yeah. We, you know, or you'd kind of like, you'd see them on a bad day and they were saying, oh, I had an exam, don't think I've done too well. And you say to them, I'd say, look, you've done your best and that's all you can do is your best. And if it's for you, it won't pass you. You know, and you can, but such a day that was like, like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, I met five, five between nurses, doctors, and even the person that was doing the radiation treatment on my brother was a past TAP student. Really? Like, it's amazing. That was and, a nice lift on, obviously, oh, a very difficult yeah, like, time in your life. Absolutely. And he was, my brother was, was dying at the time. He was very interested. Because, like myself, he wouldn't have had any education himself. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying, God, isn't that great? And I kept saying to him, if you get better, Philip, we're going, you're going to do the foundation course. I'm going to get you an application. You're going to go in there and show them all how good you are. Mm. So that's it's fantastic, mm. you know. Uh, there's lots of messages coming in. You're you're a force of nature, one of a kind, so kind and helpful. Always had time for a chat. Thanks for that, um, says Una Heffernan, uh, who's just graduated with a degree in history. She returned to education as a mature student and was nothing, Elaine, didn't know. If she didn't have an answer at the time, she'd find out and come back to you later. So I used to say happy, that. <laughs> I say I might work in Trinity College, but I don't know everything. But you know what? Nobody knows everything. I mean, you admit that you don't know it. That's a good sign. That's a very, that's a really <laughs> that's good a point. That's a good sign. And uh, Elena's an inspiration, says Mary. And because you got an honorary master's. I did. I got an honorary master's. It was the proudest day. And I, I was delighted that my grandchildren was there, even though one of them told me I was too old for school. <laughs> but it was a great honour. It really was she an honour. would be honor. great at the Trinity Access. I know. Yeah, that's what I said. Yes, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's an amazing story, Elaine. Thank um, you. It's, it's unbelievable to go in as a cleaner, sneaking yeah, reading a book. Sneaking reading, Hiroshima. I, I must actually go back and see if I can get that book. Now you have the masters. I presume it's on the wall somewhere, framed nicely. It's not, not yet. <laughs> okay, Although the busy. husband, the husband keeps saying, "I'm going to um, photograph. I'm going to 
frame that. Okay. So yeah, I said it'll be the only one I have up there. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. Yeah, have. it is amazing. Uh, the uh, sorry, there's a couple more texts here. Elaine, hi Elaine. Tammy, Tammy Elaine's daughter is sitting in Mullingar, listening so proudly. Oh my God! Your yeah. husband, girls, and grandkids are so proud of you. Love from Louise, Tammy's pal. Oh, lovely! And all, all the kisses in lovely. there. Um, somebody else says here, my late husband Paddy taught in the Desh School, sent many students through the access route in Trinity College. One of them is now a secondary school principal, and another a captain in the army. Thank you, Mary. There you go. You know, there's a great reunion. All of, walks of, these. of life. All walks yeah. of life. We have. Tap students are everywhere. They're everywhere. Absolutely everywhere and fantastic students and great ambassadors to Trinity College. Well, congr- you wouldn't have to kind of know that I love my job. <laughs> no, you <laughs> very subtle about it. Yeah, very subtle. Elaine Reynolds, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, congratulations on your math. I presume you've got some nice letters after your name. I well, did. Sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. I work on the rest of the alphabet. Put now those that I know the, it now. <laughs> the whole thing. That, make sure you put that on the Christmas cards. Oh, I will. Indeed, I will. Uh, Elaine Reynolds, good morning to you. Thank you. 51551, that's the text number. Back after this. Don't be worried about anything. Good morning, Brian Merriman and Sam Burner in studio. But let me introduce you, first of all, because uh, it was one of the, I suppose, more unusual events to mark uh, Pride uh, happening, which happened in Ireland this week. And it took place at a Catholic church in Dublin, not normally the place you'd associate with the platform to celebrate the rights of LGBT plus people. But it happened when the founder of the International Dublin Gay Theatre Festival, Brian Merriman, good morning to you. Morning. And you addressed this congregation in St. Teresa's. Uh, church, which is in Donore Avenue in Dublin 8. And right. Sam Byrne, you're you're here on behalf of... Absolutely, yeah, I'm the pastoral minister. Pastoral minister. So you work, you work full-time? Uh, well, part-time. Oh, part-time. Full-time hours, right. part-time wages. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, so I'm part-time over there. I'm part of the parish team that run the parish, yeah. Very good. And, and were you behind <laughs> this idea to, to have someone speak during Pride? About Absolutely, yeah. I suppose okay. this was our second year to hold the, the service. Mm-hmm. So last year we kept it very in-house. So one of our priests spoke and he kind of invited people to come and listen to him. So... This year we invited Brian to come along <laughs> and join us. Very good. And what, what was the idea behind it? It's called a prayer service of belonging. Yeah. But as I say, like it, it feels like an unusual thing to be happening inside a Catholic church. It is absolutely. It's it's given I, all the <laughs> you know given all the stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely the unnamed stuff. But no, absolutely. And so I suppose for us, what it was last year, Pope Francis put out a directive with James Martin, who is a Jesuit priest in America, mm-hmm. and he just said to him, look really, we need to be reaching out to the LGBT community. We're supposed to be responding to them pastorally. They belong in our churches. Let's let them into the conversation. So invite them to come along. So that was for us as a parish team. We kind of heard that message and we said, well, why aren't we doing this then? Mm-hmm. So last year we spent a whole year talking about the synodal process, which is bringing people into conversation about the future of the church. The LGBT community were part of that in our parish, certainly. So why weren't we celebrating during the month of Pride for them, you yeah. know? And so, uh, Brian, why do you think you got the call? Because I live next door. Um, <laughs> Easy answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing building works at the moment and I have two priests living next door to me and they're not priests anymore, they're saints from the putting up with all the, the, the sawing and the drilling. Um, and there used to be four. I live in a very diverse area. I'm, I'm seven doors up from the mosque. I live in the old rabbi's house. I had four <laughs> nuns beside me. Now, now there's two Marist priests. There's the Protestant church in the corner and around the corner is the Catholic church. So we're very diverse in Dublin. Well, you're well covered for yeah. the afternoon. <laughs> and, and I've been nice to them all. Uh, so it's Dublin 8 isn't straight was the response to the psalm that day uh, uh, 
So, I, so I is didn't that think, a slogan that people use? <laughs> well, it's a one that I use anyway throughout my talk. Um, that Dublin idea. isn't straight, um, and and it isn't. Um, I, like I know Father David Corrigan, who's a who's an absolute gentleman, and and I know himself and and the Reverend Mark as well from the St Catharines. But it wasn't a very easy invitation because no. I'm very loyal to my tribe, you know, and uh, you know I, I really which, which tribe my, the tribe of LGBT <laughs> inclusive yes. okay. allies and everybody else, and you know. Finally, it's 2023 and there was a very sincere welcome last year and another one this year, but you still have to balance it up, right? Okay, because and, you're, uh, uh, you, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but you're also, you're also a Catholic. Do you well, I was baptised one, but I'm, I'm not, oh, I'm not the one, they don't, uh, they don't see me very, very often. <laughs> I, I'm also, also go to the Protestant churches, etc. Part of the excluding of gay people um, means that we actually have to exclude ourselves from the institutions, but that doesn't mean you exclude yourself from your belief in God. Okay. You don't need anyone's permission to pray and you don't need anyone's permission to believe. But if those who wish to deny you or cons- give you their generous consent, that's grand. They don't bother me. Okay. So I have always, um, as I said, I had to come out at this, this talk and say, I pray every day. But okay. they won't see me forever. Um, I think I've been to about two funerals in that church in, 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 my, entire, in my, my entire life. But to be fair, Oliver, if you'd walked in and you couldn't deny, and I'm not going to deny the history and the exclusion and all that kind of stuff that went on, mm-hmm. but you also couldn't deny the atmosphere in the place when you walked in. First of all, one of the parishioners put up the following day and said that there's more people at the LGBT service for belonging than there was at regular mass. Isn't that telling you really? something? So, yeah. and, and secondly, there was a beautiful atmosphere and we even had a handful of protesters. There is nothing real in particularly the Christian churches unless you have a few old protesters and thanks for turning <laughs> up uh, because they, they made the night. <laughs> like, they really add, add a little bit of salt. They did, yeah, yeah, but the <laughs> fire and brimstone missed the premises again. I mean, you know, I had my heart hat on and not a fork of lightning came in. <laughs> okay. But what was really good that even, you know, three Three or four of them came in mm. and they they changed. They never said a word. They oh. never interrupted anything. They listened. And they left very quietly. Yeah. Um, and it's about what Sammy was saying. Like, I don't forgive them for everything that they've done to, to LGBT people. I think their teaching has been fundamentally wrong uh, throughout things. The notion that love can be a sin is not a Christian notion. However... However, a church is about its people and there's no doubt the goodness and the genuine uh, reaching out of the people in both of those parishes. And that's why I went through torture to try and think of something nice and respectful and truthful to say. And that's what happened. Isn't forgiveness part of the the Christian belief as well? It is. But they also must acknowledge, people must acknowledge that wrong was done. And that's going to be, it's very, it's, there's two things here. Can this church, these churches move forward to embrace all the good people uh, that are in their areas and can they acknowledge wrong? Now, they're quick to acknowledge wrong and other, but it's a much bigger battle when you're trying to do both. So you're Mm. trying to say, look, what you've been saying in the past is absolutely wrong, but... If you're willing to have a dialogue in yeah. today, we've something to talk about because minorities are being picked on right, left and centre at the moment. And the churches are beginning to experience what we know very well, that mm. they're now a minority in many people's minds too. Yeah, well, quite literally a minority, mm. aren't they? In, if you look at the census and so on. Yeah. Um, Sam, the, the response then of, of the parishioners. Yes. Well, I suppose, you know, across the board, we can't say that we have everybody in our, our corner. But certainly there is a huge amount of our parishioners who are in huge support of this, whether they're in attendance of it or in support of us holding it. So on the night we have parishioners of all ages. We have nuns who are in their 90s down to parishioners in their teens who come along to support this. So we know that we have 
the backing of our parishioners by and large. We know yeah. that there were a lot of our parishioners who were very hurt by it. A lot mm. of parishioners who are disgusted by it. A lot of parishioners who were telling us they're leaving our church because of it. And we don't want to see that. We want to engage in dialogue around all of that because it isn't about us saying, well, we're doing the right thing and you have to listen to us. It is about saying, well, can you tell us what it is that's upsetting you? Can we sit down and have a conversation about this? Can we try and move ourselves forward as a parish? Because mm. we're hearing the call from Pope Francis to say that we are supposed to be responding pastorally to everybody. That's what we're trying to do in as much as we respond pastorally to everybody's needs within the parish. So it isn't about us saying, well, we're doing this and we're right doing this. Mm. It is part of a conversation. We're trying to open that door, you know. Do you think you have a lot of LGBT people who come to, to Mass we regularly? We know we do. We know, you know? we do. So okay. we have a lot of people who live in our community. We've had families who come and have their children baptised in same-sex unions. We have people who come and worship in our churches. We have a couple who are married to two men. Uh, we call them the two Michaels, funny enough, because they are both Michael. <laughs> but they are married and they're on our ministry teams and they're part of our parish councils and they're part of our liturgy committees who, pre who prepare masses and special liturgies through the year. Uh, they're Eucharistic ministers, they're readers. They welcome people as they come through the door every Sunday at, at regular mass. So... We have people who are very active in our parish. We have people who are hidden in our parish as well, Oliver. So yeah. we have people that aren't brave enough to say that they're members of the LGBT community, but they come, they pray, they contribute to the collections, they come and get some solace, they get some support, they reach out to the priest when they need to, but they're still hidden in our society, in uh, our church. The fact you know? that you said there are same-sex couples who have their children baptised there yeah. and are, are welcomed there, I mean, it, it's all like an Irish solution to an Irish problem, isn't it? We have this kind of gigantic yeah. thing coming from the Vatican where you're not allowed to do this, that and yes. the other. Yeah. But then on the ground, the, the, the good Absolutely. people like yourself and the parish priests around the country, yeah. they have to deal with the people face on. And, and you have to kind of practice, to use that awful Catholic term that they used here, yeah. you have to use mental reservation, don't you? Yeah, I suppose, like, you know, obviously the magisterium of the church or the rules of the church, we're not trying to challenge any of that. That's, you know, a synodal process. So the couple happening. can't get married, but they can baptise their child. Well, they can baptise their child or they have baptised their child and are now living in our parish and have said to us, my child is baptised. They go to Catholic school. I want them prepared for communion confirmation. We certainly don't make any judgments on their request to do that, you know. So we try to re respond pastorally to anybody who comes to us and says, look, I'm part of this community. I want to be involved. How can I be? You know, we don't stand at the door, Brian, every or sorry, Oliver, every weekend and say to people, can I just check now? Are you on, is this your first marriage or your second? Have you had children yeah. outside of wedlock? We don't do that with anybody else, yeah. you know, so we don't certainly want to do that to any member of the LGBT community. So we say in our mission statement in the church, and we have done for many years before this issue arose, we're an open and inclusive parish. That's not only to the LGBT community, it's also to people from other countries, from other denominations, from colours, races, ori origins. So... We just want to live by that. We want to say mm. we're open and inclusive and you're welcome here. You're welcome to be part of our parish. Did you have to get permission from the Archbishop of Dublin to have this event? We, last year, we didn't oh. ask for We kind of done the Catholic thing of we'll do a force and ask for forgiveness <laughs> later. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So last year, we kind of flew under the radar with it. We will be honest. And we held it and it was kind of word of mouth that, mouth that we were going to be holding it, you right. know. People invited friends along. We did get a call from the bishop afterwards. He had had oh, really? many emails and phone calls uh, by people protesting and giving out about it. So he rang and he said, look, I'm not opposed to what you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. At grassroots level, you're supposed to respond to your parishioners' needs. And if you can identify that as a need within your parish, then absolutely I have no problem with you holding a prayer service, which is all it was, people coming together to pray. Okay. So... 
Uh, and this year, he, his, his kind of stance was that we had flown the progress flag on the church property. So his stance was, please don't fly the, sorry, flag. the witch flag? The rainbow flag. The rainbow yeah. flag. Well, but, the progress one. the one in Christchurch, Oliver, uh, uh, <laughs> over the weekend. Because I also, being much the denominational church, yeah. I went down there because yeah. they had a service as well on Sunday afternoon at 3.30 where uh, they have a group called Changing Attitudes Ireland, which yeah. is working with the church. And a former bishop became their patron. Mm-hmm. But the pride flag was flown outside and from the beautiful Golden Eagle lectern, which they, 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 they read the Gospels from as well. And there's a We Are Church group uh, mm-hmm. on the for the Catholic side uh, as well. Like, you know, like it or not, uh, conversations are happening. And if you're going to be a proper minister and a proper pastor, etc., you need to know your flock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. You can decide. I, actually, I want to come back to you a second yeah. on, the, on the Church of Ireland yeah. in particular, but I just want to finish up with, with Sam because we were talking yeah. about the Archbishop. This is Dermot Farrell we're talking Dermot about. Dermot Farrell, the, yes. The Archbishop yes. of Dublin. Uh, did he have a... Um, so he had a problem with the pride flag in, in particular, he, was it so? He just reminded us of diocesan policy, which is that the only flags that can be flown on church property is the Vatican flag and the Irish national flag. Oh, so okay. he reminded us of diocesan policy, which we took on board and we apologised to him. We apologised to our parishioners that we may have offended by flying the flag on yes, the property. Okay. Um, and that was it. And this year, and you haven't done it. prior to the service, somebody from the Archbishop's office reached out to us to just remind us on our policy of flying flags. Okay. So they knew the service was happening. That wasn't what came up just in conversation. The flag, just the flag. It's like being in the north. Or something, Absolutely. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you do consider yourself a Christian, Brian, it's fair I to would, say. Yeah, definitely. Um, the Church of Ireland definitely feels like a much more um, liberal place than the Catholic Church it, well, in, I think in, it's on because, these issues. I actually think it's because possibly they've gotten away with it because we don't know as much about them um, than, oh. than that. Um, because, you know, there are some horrendous stories too of people like church organists and stuff who are playing the organ in a local church violent church and they get married and they're fired from their jobs yeah. you know like so so it's not all one or the other that mm. happened in Dublin you're looking puzzled puzzled at oh, right. no, yeah. but I was actually because there are some there are yeah. some openly gay people who there are. survived and thrived yes. in the church of Ireland yeah, yeah. oh absolutely and indeed there are many gay Catholic clergy who are gay mm-hmm. um, and as I said in my own speech we see you it must be very difficult for you to be working in a, in an institution that is blind to you and I think that is a real dilemma um, I think personally that a lot of gay people as I said and LGBT inclusive are quite conservative people and only that they have been kicked to the, the margins and found new friends and that they're maybe uh-huh. more liberal they become but, more revolutionary yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah. A, a lot of them are, have thought when you think really deeply about who you are yourself it gets you to think deeply about other people mm. and indeed what other people say and do. So, you know, we have actually gone through that process of being completely honest with our humanity and that isn't a journey that all churches or people have gone through as well. And on that way we can be a great help to them because we've taken all the rocks and the things we've gone down this road of risk and, yeah. and hate etc. So look lads, we're, we're halfway around the course when you start so we, we, we can zoom you up the track yeah. if, if you want to. But very positive uh, you know you know something Oliver when you walk in and the atmosphere is right and I've been to the two of them and the atmosphere is lovely. And just okay. to say as well like this wasn't just a Catholic event we have the Church of Ireland who are next door to us Reverend Mark Gardner is there. This was an ecumenical event between the two churches so it was Church of Ireland and the Catholic Church had come oh, right. together Okay. As we do on numerous occasions during the year, during Lent and Easter and Advent and different times, we always come together for ecumenical prayer. So we try to, to be in contact with each other and in the conversation with each other because there are parishioners together, you know. Mm. So it was an ecumenical event between the Church of Ireland 
and the Catholic Church on Donore Avenue. Mm. Uh, Brian, tell us what you told uh, the congregation in your speech. Uh, I I write plays, etc. And I speak quite a lot. And I found this really difficult. Oh, really? I really did. And I, 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 I... Wrote I wrote it down. I mean, I speak extempore usually, which means I start on a Tuesday and I finish on Friday week. But you know, I, I knew I had ten yeah, minutes. You know, and, uh, so and I want to be careful. I was not going to betray my tribe. I wasn't going to ignore everything that gay people have been put through in their lives. Even even the lovely people that were there who are denied marriage, etc., in the church that they work so hard for. That's a real cruelty. It really mm. is. Especially when it is very much part of, they would see marriage as a sacrament rather than a, than a civil uh, action. Yes. And I, I, I don't like being in the presence of any institution where cruelty is done. However, I wanted to make a couple of points. There is something that this particular parish has an experience of, and that is a huge loss because of AIDS. When I moved in there in 1990, there was a funeral a month, um, mainly through drug addiction, etc. And it was horrific to see grandparents holding children by the hand who'd lost their parents from drug addiction because the churches, as well as the state, and because we were criminals at the time, uh, you couldn't, you know, it was like the anti-maskers who said, don't wear a mask for COVID. They told us not to wear condoms when there was AIDS going around. They Denied denied the pandemic. Yeah, and it was the other pandemic. And they denied us access to information on grounds of morality. Six million people died of COVID. 36 million people died of AIDS. Mm. So there is a... Which moral, remains a yeah, pandemic, by yeah, the way. It does. So they need to sit down and have a discussion about what they did during that time. They're also then, the Anglican Union message the other day was, you know, and, and they were, I, I could see, once again, a beautiful tone set, but they're struggling because there is a more conservative view in the Anglican Union in um, Africa, right? Mm. But they don't acknowledge that they taught the Africans about the Anglican <laughs> religion. Like it was the missionary zeal that's yeah. got them into the troubles that they're in today. And even though they wanted to reach out to their LGBT um, inclusive uh, parishioners, etc., they were still saying, oh, but we might be breaking up the union instead. Well, what is truth in a religion? You know, do you protect the institution first or do you uh, pastorally care for for your, your members and for your flock? Well, well, both seems to happen in the church, doesn't it? Because we, we know the Vatican protects itself yeah. and we know that they protect themselves here yeah. in the hierarchy. But then we have people who are working on the ground every day doing the funerals and the baptisms and talking to and people. You see, and you see, I think that's where the conversation needs to happen. You know, for us, certainly in the church, as I said, we are not trying to challenge the magisterium of the church. We understand what church teaching is. No, (laughs) but what we're trying to do, like I suppose when I say we're not challenging it, we're not holding up the picket lines, but we are challenging it in a way that we're trying to have our conversations in our parish and we're starting to push the walls out from inside. So Mm -hmm. we're trying to say, look, in our community, how do we respond to this issue? How do we respond to the people? What is it we need to hear? What is it we need to, to listen to? And then if we can change ourselves, hopefully we can influence others then to start having the same conversations and then you start to just send out those little ripples and eventually that conversation becomes large enough that people start to hear it, you know. Yeah. So we can't go in to the Vatican and stand in the middle of St. Peter's with our placards. Nobody's going to hear us. But if we start our own personal conversations. Are you, co- are you could. No, but I'm saying if we start <laughs> our own conversations and those conversations get larger and larger and larger. believe that you're going to be heard is kind of extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? it? Absolutely. And you're, you're doing their work. Yeah. You're yeah, doing their work. It. But the dilemma is, Oliver, that they will rush to judgment about love every second day. Pope Benedict was obsessed with us, right? Mm. And they will not stand up and call out hate. And that is a real dilemma at the moment in society. As we see, there are elements of society that are getting more vocal. And yet 
the churches will, like the churches, both churches You're prayed talking, for Uganda the other day, okay, but yes. their teaching caused it because yes. the law- lawmakers over there are quoting the Bible mm. when they pass those heinous laws. Mm. Call it out. We can look at our EU neighbours, Poland, obviously the Catholic Church is the forefront of the homophobia yeah. that's uh, being practised by the state yeah. now at this stage. There's lots of texts coming in. Uh, the core teaching of Christianity is love. There's nothing it emphasises more. It doesn't say love this person and not that person. True Christians understand this and know this and those who do not have missed the point completely. God is love and he takes joy in all his creation, says Roe. God is love was your message. My team. It was. My team. <laughs> and and it was, and, and it's, it's the one thing you can't contradict because, you know, <laughs> love is love. Um, and I also used the colours of the pride flag. And I said to the Christian churches there, I said, do we have anything in common? Because our testament, we hear about the Old Testament, the New Testament, our testament is this rainbow of things which stand for things like healing, uh, serenity, Harmony and violet stands for the soul, and that is the beginning of the conversation, yeah. I believe. Okay. So, you try and find common ground, and we present it in our flag. The flag that won't allow it to be flown, mind you, stands yeah. for all these wonderful human values, etc. Yeah. And that's saying something as well. Um, this text said, I'm from Teresa, St. Teresa's parish, it was always a progressive parish. I'm so proud to hear this area embracing all, all different but equal, says Maura in Limerick. Oh, well. um, maybe you need to break away. <laughs> Start the rebel <laughs> church. <laughs> A rebel but, it's called Protestantism. I've <laughs> 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 tried it. It ended up yeah. quite similar. It's not remarkable it was the only one. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it, like you, we all have just agreed God is love. So yes. where's the love, lads? You but, know? Do you know, you I know? suppose for us in St. Teresa's, we haven't invented the wheel. You know, it isn't that we've sat down and became this wonderful parish. We've had this wonderful idea of embracing people, you know. We see this across the board. We are Church Ireland talk all the time about inclusivity, equality, visibility within within the church, particularly in Ireland, but across the world, obviously. Um, we see in America that their, you know, Father James Martin works very closely with the LGBT community. Janine Gramick has been doing it for decades. People have already been doing this. So all we're trying to do is join the same conversation. So yeah. we're hearing this message of inclusivity, of belonging, of people feeling that this is, part of their life if they want it to be. It's a good message. Good message to end on. Sam Byrne of St. Teresa's Parish in Donore Avenue in Dublin 8 which isn't straight according to Brian, <laughs> Brian we also du- Dublin 8 doesn't hate. <laughs> Brian, Dublin 8 is great. <laughs> Brian Merriman founder of the International Dublin Gay Theatre Festival. Thank you both for coming in. It's an interesting discussion and I look forward to having it for the next 1,000 years. That's great. Thanks, all the <laughs> Thank Thanks for these. having us. Thanks a million. Salam. Uh, Catherine McCormick, good morning to you. We're joined in the studio by Catherine McCormick and we're going to bring everybody back for a moment, Catherine, to 1993. So Neve Cavan is there winning Eurovision within your <laughs> eyes. The Cranberries are releasing Linger. And this staple of Dublin City, the Duran Vavden, is yes. opening its doors for the first time 30 years ago. Dublinia. I always wonder, am I saying it right? Dublinia. You are Dublinia. Dublinia. And uh, Catherine McCormick, you're the assistant coordinator and mentor of living histories at Dublinia. Um, that sounds like a weighty title. It is. It's actually kind of, it's it's technically two jobs in one. So oh. I have the assistant coordinator where I teach archaeology primarily on our courses. So we have a level mm. five and level six course. Um, and then the mentor of living history is looking after our very talented living historian team in Dublinia. So I make sure their costumes are all um correct and accurate. I give them any extra notes that they may need and just keep make sure to keep an eye on that to make sure that they are um, 
just doing their jobs. <laughs> and that's the thing that everyone will remember who's been to Dublin over the last 30 years. Clearly I've been there as well. I brought my little sister years and years and years ago. And it really sticks in my memory having the living history guides are all dressed as Vikings and so on. And you're in, you're inside with the wattle and... Uh, what is well, it? Wattle, wattle and dove, yeah. Wattle and dove, <laughs> yes. The weaving and all that. I sound very knowledgeable. That's why you're here to tell us. Um, but uh, to, I want to take a little step back because working in heritage is, is a bit of a vocation, isn't it? Why, why did you want to work in heritage? So... I wanted to work in heritage since I was young. I remember always loving archaeology as a child. I specifically didn't care much for history, though. Um, it was always the much older past. So things oh. like the Stone Age um, and then the Vikings, of course. So I kind of knew I wanted to do that from a young age. And then when I was in transition year, I was actually lucky enough to go to the UCD School of Irish Archaeology Um they did a kind of transition year program for a week and I was just hooked. And then I went back and did my undergraduate and my master's degree in archaeology in UCD as well. And you have Swedish background? Which I is... do. So my mother is Swedish and I was born in Stockholm. So she would always tell us when we were small, if we didn't want to get into the lake water, you know, are you a real, real Viking or not? Um, so we've always kind of been told that we were Vikings. But then when you actually study it, you're like, well, they didn't actually come to Ireland, though. They went the other side. <laughs> the Swedish Vikings. The Swedish Vikings, yeah. They mainly went over oh. to uh, raid the Baltic in and around um, places like Russia. Oh, fair, oh, fair play to them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what Vikings did, did, did we get in Dublin? We primarily got Norwegian Vikings uh -huh. and some Danish as well, but mostly um, Norwegians. And we have a new exhibition at the moment, which is looking at the links between, specifically between Ireland and Norway. So we have some fantastic objects that have just been given to us um, on loan, of course, um, from the University Museum of Stavanger, where there's particular objects that were made, produced in Ireland and then were found in Norway. Oh, really? So we okay. know that they're trading, possibly raiding as well. Um, and, you know, a thousand years later, an archaeologist can find it and know, well, actually, that's a, a citric coin that was made and minted in Dublin. Oh, they were over and back. Um, I didn't know that as well as a museum, the Dublinia runs these training courses, which is neatly brings us to your job there now. So uh, what happens what, what happens in Dublinia besides what we see publicly? So upstairs on the fourth floor, we have a kind of secret room, which is our classrooms. And what we do is we have two different training courses. So we have a level five course, which is a culture and heritage studies um, programme. And our learners learn all about archaeology, history, folklore, um, communications, uh, customer service, and they kind of get a bit um, a bit of a background around all of those topics. And then they have a work experience placement with us. So they'll actually work in the museum as guides. And then we also um, have a really strong link with St. Patrick's Cathedral. So they'll uh -huh. also learn how to give guided tours there. Literally then, connected. Literally. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's Christchurch. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> My ignorance is, no, you're fine. Ignorance is really so, funny. So it, it, it's, yeah, it's very confusing. Uh, so St. Patrick's Cathedral is the one um, a little bit down the road for us. And then they'll do external work experience. So they can choose to work anywhere that they have an interest, like Dublin Castle or we've had people go to Farmley, uh, the GPO Museum. And at the moment, our statistics are very good that 90 to 95 percent of our learners will get employed in the heritage industry following our course. So if you're bumping into heritage people, the chances are they've come out of Dublinia. You could go to any um, major um, heritage site in Dublin at the moment and I guarantee you somebody has done our course. Wow. And the success rate is very high and we also have one of the beautiful things about our programme is for a number of people who are on social welfare, there is a chance depending on their qualification, um, their 
eligibility, they could actually keep that um, funding going. So they're still ah, getting their good. funding yeah. throughout the course as well. That's so they're not idea. losing any money. That's a very good idea. Um, why is it important when they're doing the, the training, obviously in heritage, that why is it important that they also, you, you, you train them and get, give them this experience as a living historian? So I think living history is something that just makes us different as a museum. So mm. usually when you go into a museum, you're just looking at objects in glass cabinets. You're not allowed to touch them. You have to be quite quiet. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and reading in, tiny plaques. Yes. Mm. Uh, whereas in Dublinia, it's a lot more personable that you have somebody who's literally dressed head to toe like a Viking. Um, they can actually tell you about the clothes they're wearing. You could even try on a Viking helmet. You can try on a costume. And it just elevates your experience. And especially because, you know, not everyone really enjoys reading off plaques. Um, we know like that it's an important part of, of, of a museum experience, but to actually, you know, hold a replica sword, um, try on a costume, it gives you a much more kind of tangible link to the past. And a lot of our living historians are trained craftspeople as well. Oh, right. So one of our living historians, Lloyd, has been... Um, fantastic at making replica objects out of antler and oh. we've been able to source that antler from the lovely um, OPW in Phoenix Park so the beautiful deer that you're seeing we are yeah. taking some of their antler and making uh, Lloyd is uh, they naturally making, shed they naturally antlers, shed yes so we're not getting out. them in any other kind of <laughs> malicious way That's they're naturally true. shed and Lloyd is then uh, recreating objects found just almost you know across the road from us at Woodkey so a customer can actually Very hold good. that object. And then our living historian, Heather, as well, is a weaver. So she's making replica Viking bands, wow. um, which are all based on actual finds in the archaeology. They're not just kind of made up patterns. We we specifically follow patterns that have been found. So you can hold a band that looks exactly like what somebody wore a thousand years ago. And that's, that's what incredible. just makes us different to other museums. That's very, very specific, isn't it? Yes. And uh, the wattle and daub. Yeah, so we have Wattle and Dob in our in, in our that's houses. That's I remember. Yeah, um, and so you can absolutely you can sit in a replica Viking house, and it really does feel like a Viking house. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no windows; even the lights are a little bit kind of darker there, and you can kind of sit on a bench. And usually Heather's in there, so while you're sitting on the bench, she'll be able to show you the, the weaving that she's been doing. Um, and then we have other living historians. So, for example, David is one of our experts in weaponry, yeah. so he'll tell you all about the swords. Um, and then Francis is our expert in games so Viking games like Neffeltafel for example which is a strange board game Neffeltafel yes it's a very strange oh, it's a Viking era board game it is game. Okay. and we have is we it have, any good it, it, it's good it's a bit confusing um, <laughs> but uh, Francis is our expert and uh, so our customers can kind of get a, a sense as to what um, Viking games were like so it's yeah. not when we think of the Vikings we always kind of think of you know weaponry and warfare and it's all very bloody but a lot of Viking life wasn't like that it was a lot of being in the home and trading mm. and playing games and you know re like rearing children I'm, I'm interested in the casting of uh, the living story <laughs> this isn't a pitch or anything but uh, are you kind of looking for you know the, the, the big the big, big burly guys yeah big biker <laughs> biker lads uh, with tattoos I don't know if the Vikings had tattoos uh, well <laughs> Some of them did. Uh, oh, so what was it? We're, we're not specifically looking for people with um, like they don't need to look a certain way. So, for example, living history plays a very big part of our course as well. So, you know, we tell our prospective learners that when you join our course, you will like, most likely be dressed up. Um, but one of the things that I'm very passionate about is I will make sure that they get a role that suits them. Okay. So if I know somebody has an interest in weaving, I'll teach them how to weave, I teach them how to null bind. 
or if they're oh, you uh, have all is, the Viking crafts yourself yeah apart from Antler I can't do that Lloyd is, <laughs> is a specialist in his own right <laughs> there's only one um, there's only one Lloyd um, but yeah so we make sure that they all kind of suit so for example I mean, yes, if you are a particularly large, tall man, we may give you the, the role of a Viking warrior. And, and you're into swords. And, you can and you're into swords. Yeah. But we also are very... Calling um, all hairy, tattooed bikers. <laughs> that, was all, your chance. that was your chance. We're also very passionate to make sure that we have women as Viking warriors because we have new evidence to suggest that women were also taking part in warfare. Oh, we, so didn't, we didn't know this... We didn't have 100% direct evidence for a while, but now there's been new evidence from a site in Burka in Sweden, which oh. uh, shows that the very high status burial of what had been assumed to be a, a Viking warrior male has now been reassessed to be a female. So now we know ah. that there were definitely Viking women who were taking part, which we had kind of assumed, um, but we... We're, we're now starting to find more and more direct evidence in the archaeology, which is very exciting. I love that history has now become uh, more equal. It has, yeah. sitting there in front of us all the time. Uh, what about the building itself? It's a, it's a very distinctive building. Tell us about that. It is. So the building was purchased by the Medieval Trust um, in 1991. And it's a quite old building in itself. It was built in 1870 as okay. the Synod Hall. So this is where they would have held um, the... Uh, meetings of of clergy mm. but before that it was also a parish church of St. Michael of the Archangel and we still have the medieval tower that's still there so yeah. visitors can actually climb up it's 96 steps at the top but it's well worth the view you get oh, a 360 view of the city an extra little bit of history attached absolutely so we have the medieval tower and then we have the um, 1870 um, building which is in a very beautiful Victorian kind of gothic style which who's, is attached who's to Who's the Medieval Church. Trust, by the way? Are they still. So the Medieval Trust is actually a non-for-profit uh, parent company of Dublinia. So they kind of came out of um, as a reaction of the Woodkeep excavations that they wanted yeah. to be able to show off our heritage and specifically show off our Viking and medieval heritage. So they bought the property with the intent to develop it as a museum for the public. Which was really important because obviously we notoriously bulldozed and concreted over our incredible Viking heritage, which I'm sure you're delighted with as a student <laughs> of all of this. Um, but there have been discoveries along the way, haven't there? Was it was Little Ship Street last year? Wasn't there a Viking Yes, so new, new new Viking sites were uh, were discovered in Ship Street. There's always new archaeology being discovered. It's and now a new gleaming museum. In, no, I'm joking. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hotel. Um, it is. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't dig, you don't find. So mm-hmm. it is unfortunate that a lot of these sites will get covered over, but it does give the archaeologists the opportunity to learn about our past as well. Um, so it's kind of rock and a hard place with archaeology. You know, commercial archaeology is essentially driven by building, yeah. but also it's bad because buildings then cover the archaeology. <laughs> We should just uh, tear all of Dublin down and, and stare just, at the and ground. And just start, start having a, <laughs> yeah. a look and see what we can find. <laughs> uh, Dublinia, it is a genuinely important thing, is it? Because the, yes. the, it keeps the whole thing um, quite literally alive, doesn't it? Yes. And nobody really remembers going into a museum and the, the little plaque they saw. No. But you're going to remember a fella dressed and to, to, talking about antlers and talking about the smell of Dublin. Yes. Back in the Viking era. Probably not unlike uh, Dublin today in a, in a heat <laughs> wave. But uh, not, not, what, what's the typical day of your living historians like from beginning S- to end? 
So usually they'll come in, they'll get their kind of brief of the day. So a lot of our living historians are also our tour guides. So they may have a tour in the morning, which can either be a primary school group and they'll be dressed head to toe as Vikings. So the primary schools love that experience and they'll be brought through the exhibition or they could have maybe the start of their morning is just um, as a living historian. So they are just, you know, in one spot. So maybe the Viking longhouse or maybe they're upstairs on the medieval floor talking about medicine in the medieval period. So it kind of their day rotates of giving guided tours, um, maybe working on the welcome desk, but then primarily being a living historian. So in costume with their objects ready to show the public. And, and we get them. to touch those objects yes. and put them on in some cases. Absolutely. Try them on. Feel the weight of a sword. Um, see Lloyd um, actually working, making something in front of your eyes. Same with Heather actually weaving in front of your eyes. It just makes a whole other experience being in, in a museum. And when you're holding that sword, think of the price of the insurance um, <laughs> for it to be Absolutely. Random people come in. It's it's amazing. It's a great story. So it's thirty years old. Is there an official date or is there an official kind of party so for you guys? It's officially in June. So we're kind of ah. we're kind of celebrating our month of we June. We just started we've celebrating. Started the celebration, years. and to mark the celebration as well, we've uh, a new exhibition I'm on display, to. which is all about. Um, very importantly Viking women and the role of women it's becoming more and more popular to study Mm -hmm. women in the past so we have objects on loan from the University Museum in Stavanger in Norway Oh brilliant so this is this new discovery that you can go to enjoy Yes so we have some beautiful um objects and it's going to tell you about life as a, as a woman and the role of women and have some real objects on display to have I can see at. you would have been a fierce uh, Viking a Swedish Viking woman but you would have gone Russia direction. I would have gone to Russia but I think uh, like with <laughs> with, uh, with, with my um, I'm very sensitive to the cold so I think I would have oh, right. probably moved to Ireland pretty quickly <laughs> Catherine McCormick it's been an absolute pleasure and well done to everyone in Dublinia and Thank congratulations on 30 years 51551 that's our text number back after this and you're very welcome back. 51551, that is our text number. Now, our guests this morning in studio, they've committed their lives to something that uh, we all enjoy, but we probably take for granted. And sometimes it's under threat, has been learning all the time. The printed word, the beauty of the printed word. Harry Havlin and Freddie Snow, uh, good morning to you both. Uh, you're both involved in the National Print Museum in Dublin, where you share your skills and your stories from a life in the craft. And there's also they're also among the many printers whose experiences are captured in this new book, which I'm looking at here. Um, it's called Strange Types and Odd Sorts, which will be launched today. And as we'd expect, and it would have to be, it's a, it's obviously a gorgeous printed publication. Um, it has to be. Yeah, it has to be. Harry, actually, I'm going to start with you. Tell us about the National Print Museum, what goes on there and what you do there, Harry Havlin. The National Print Museum has a big collection of old technology printing equipment. Mm. Now this is equipment that would have been used in the past before computerization. And in the 1970s and 80s when technology was changing, mm. some people decided that it was a good it would be a good idea to try and save this equipment for the future. So uh, some of the equipment was stored in the t- headquarters of the union in 35 Law Gardner Street, but that was no longer, you know, suitable. And eventually, through the good offices of Bertie Ahern and a few other people, they got the old garrison chapel in Beggar's Bush 
up there on Haddington Road. And in 1996, President Mary McAleese opened the National Print Museum and it's been there ever since. It's a working museum, open every day except Monday. And you can go in there and see old printing equipment as uh, used in the past, typesetting equipment, printing equipment, proofing equipment uh, and ruling machines and so on. And uh, we have open days as well when all the machines are working and people can see the hot metal being uh, turned into lines of type and so on. The beauty and of printing goes on, but more, more importantly, along with all the machines, you have the, the living historians, which are yourselves as volunteers. Is that right, Freddie? That's, that's correct, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. uh, you, will you give us a sense of, let's go back to the printing apprenticeships and how kind of important that was to you, especially when you were growing up in, in your own family. Well, I come from a family, a very strong printing background. Mm. Going back to my grandfather, my uncles, my aunts. The only thing was my father wasn't the printer and this caused a problem because at the time and I started in 62 my brother started a year older than me in 61 as an apprentice sure. you had your father if your father was a printer you had a better chance of getting into the clothes shop as an apprentice right, oh, right. and then it was open to the general public right uh, and it was difficult to get an apprenticeship. Three boys, as I said in the book, you three boys the would be nominated connection. and the family connection was very important right. so my mum my mother strong willed woman uh, was determined her sons were going to be printers like the rest of the family. Yeah. And in my case, she ended up going into Gardner Street, which is the headquarters of the union, saw Nicky McGrath, who was the general secretary of the DTPS, the union, and said, printer sons get first choice. After that, it's printer's grandsons. And I want my son Freddie fixed up. Then you can open <laughs> it up to anybody you like as long as he gets his apprenticeship. She spent the whole day and she, and she sat in and she said, I'm not leaving here. That evening, and she sat in the front hall, the front hall for the whole day. And that evening when Nicky was trying to lock up the building for the evening, he said, Lily, please, will you go home? Oh, I'm not going until you do this. You agree? And he said, all right, OK, go on, go home. It's sorted. Yeah, it's yeah. sorted. And that, <laughs> so was, the, that was the beginning of the step then. It's hugely important. Your grandfather was a stone man. That's in the, right, uh, in the independence. Stone man. stone man. I'm a printer, a machine man. I put mm. ink on paper. Harry and the rest of the guys that comes and there's great crack between the two sides. I, as an apprentice or a printer, I could not touch type on the machine. Oh, Even right. though I was printing with the slightest thing, I'd have to go and get somebody from the case room, Harry or somebody else, and they'd come into the machine hall and they'd lord it over everybody. They'd walk <laughs> in, these guys or whatever. The simplest of tasks. So, and there's a huge difference. All this demarcation was always there between the printer and the... The hierarchy. The the yeah. um, you mentioned the case room. Harry, you're in the case room. Can you, can you bring us into the case room? What was it like walking in there? The case room, I started in the Irish Press case room in 1964 and it was so busy. I mean, they had 27 linotype machines in the case room. It was noisy, full of activity, compositors, stone men, readers, journalists rushing all over the place. It was that the whole thing was to get the paper out on time. There were deadlines yeah. for the papers. The morning Irish press had to be off the stone around 12.15 a.m. The evening press, the evening paper had to be off the stone around 11.30 p, uh, a.m. Off the stone the being, it's, it's on the paper. Off the stone, ready to go to the press, on the, pre on the press and going out the back door in bales to be collected by the vans and taken to the trains and that sort of thing. The Freddy yeah, Snows yeah. coming off the stone. Uh, and it's obviously a very noisy place. Very noisy, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my my ears are still damaged from it. <laughs> 
if it's serious. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. It was permanent noise. Permanent noise all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the, the and it comes through in the book, um, you know, the kind of the smells, the vocabulary of the printing. It's like a, it's almost evocative of what feels like a, a Dickensian, you know, imagery of what it was like to put all this stuff together. Uh, but there, there was good crack in it. Great crack. Yeah. 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 It had been like that, like that, that old system had been in operation for many, many years. And then it came all really in a very short period of time it came to a shuddering stop in the late 70s early 80s with the arrival of new technology Just before we cut to the shuddering stop because I'm still really fascinated about just the atmosphere in that room there's something called the knockdown what's the knockdown and why would that be happening? The knockdown the knockdown is a traditional uh, appreciation of an apprentice finishing his apprenticeship and also somebody getting married or whatever Ah, Um, what that would be would be at the final there'd be a little presentation to a guy or whatever and all the staff the the craftsmen would all gather in a particular area particularly in the case room or in the case of the machine the big clanking room you'd you'd grab a spanner or a hammer or anything and the nearest thing that would make noise and you'd just start banging 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 and, so was uh, this a, a huge salute? A huge the whole salute. Press now, you always noise. knew the esteem the person was held in, how long it lasted. Is that right? And how loud <laughs> it was. Some guys, boom, 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 or whatever. Others, uh, when Mary Marr was returning from the Irish Times, the journalist from the Irish Times, may have been she came in with her for the president. And I invited her down to the press hall. I was driving the press at the time in yeah. there. And for to start up the press which was a great honour for somebody outside the craft to get that honour oh really and we welcomed her when she came in she was a great character and Maeve was sitting over the corner and we gave her a traditional knockdown or whatever Brilliant. and that went down it was, and Maeve when we were finished and all that Maeve said to me on the way out she says you know she says the hairs were standing up in the back of my neck she says I've never heard anything as emotional in my life with that, with that, this knockdown. Sometime later, for an outsider, and, and yeah, outsider. Sometime later, if, if an envelope arrived in for me, and what it was was from Mary, and it was a photograph of uh, the uh, an actor standing oh. at the stone, and he was the sub editor, right? And he's standing there, and he's telling the compositors, the sub editor told the compositors what to do. He couldn't touch the type, right? Right. And she sent this thing in to me and she says, Freddie, thank you so much. I will never, ever forget. That was the greatest knock-up I ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> the knock-up, okay, yeah. I corrected her arm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which I hope was within the union rules to yeah, correct was, the yeah. spell yeah. check yeah. and everything else. So the glory days, you were talking about, just Harry, just before I interrupted you, before the, uh, the, the kind of where it comes to an end, but the glory days are kind of 1960s, 70s. How many printing presses, how, how huge was printing in Dublin in this era? Huge. Well, in in there's a there was a, an advertisement uh, in the Irish press in 1963 mm-hmm. put in by the print union, and if you look at that, I think there's 101 printing houses in that. Some big, some small, some tiny. But looking back now, that's a, what 60 years ago now. There's only two of those still. The Irish Times and the Independent, the rest are all gone. Yeah, you know. Now the defense forces still have their printing press up up in St Brigan's Hospital, and 
but all of the other printing places are gone. They just com- wiped Companies it. had, like CIE had their own printing press. Yeah, a lot of them had, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Guinness, yeah. Dublin, Castle, everyone. So it, yeah. it, it was a huge, huge thing with huge obviously thing. massive numbers of people involved as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, strange Times and Odd Times. The, the book itself is a collaboration between the Print Museum yourselves and Fighting Words, which is a charity which was set up by Roddy Doyle, who's on the phone. Good morning to you, Roddy Doyle. Hello, how are you? How are you doing? And we'll come to Fighting Words in a minute because I'm fascinated about that um, charity which doesn't get half enough coverage, Roddy, despite all, all the coverage you give it. But uh, you actually have a very personal connection, don't you, to the history of printing in Dublin? Yeah, my father was a printer. He was a compositor. And uh, so a lot of... I've just been listening to the two lads there and a lot of what they're saying sounds familiar to me because my father was full of those stories, full of the noise and the the smells and the... Uh, the dignity and all the all the aspects of the job, and he was uh, heavily involved in the unions as well. Well, you caught me there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he was um, not so much the printing union as the. He, he went on to become a teacher of compositing and and graphic design, uh-huh. and, and many of the men in and in the book actually were taught by him. So uh, he was involved, and I think, according to himself anyway, in the setting up of the TUI, the Teachers' Union of Ireland, because um, the technical teachers weren't being admitted into the ASDI. Yeah, and actually we just heard um, uh, Freddie telling us about, you know, the access to the apprenticeship and the family connections being um, so important, because I think your dad yeah. did have a, was involved in bringing changes to the entry to the apprenticeship. In the he area. was, yeah. It was his uncle, uh, who was a foreman, if that's the word, at Juverna Press, just off Lippy Street, who got my father in mm-hmm. to, to serve his apprenticeship, and my uncle Jackie, who went on to be a printer in uh, Guinnesses. But... Um, my father then, you know, he went on to teach in Bolton Street. And then when Anko was set up in the early, in the mid-60s, he was one of the first people in there. And they set about modernising the whole apprenticeship system. So it went from seven years, which was the, the time since medieval times, to four, to four years. And it was proper block, block release for the apprentices. And they were, uh, it, it was just brought up to the, you know, up to the 20th century. It, it, it kind of seemed to jump from, you know, a 600-year period into the 20th century. So my father was involved in that. He was very proud of that. Very proud. And he was he was kind of obsessive about print as well, wasn't he? He'd be, he'd be looking over uh, his shoulders. Yeah, he loved it. I mean, uh, you know, he wasn't a printer when I was a... a he, he might have been when I was a, a baby. He, he yeah. gave it up. One of the reasons he gave it up because he didn't want to work nights anymore. He worked for the Independent. And he didn't want to work nights anymore. But he liked, I think he liked the teaching. And it, the, in the registry book, uh, in my primary school, he's described as a vocational teacher. But uh, he loved the whole world of print. And, you know, there were even times I'd be reading a book and he'd look over my shoulder and tell me what the font was. <laughs> you know, and all I wanted to do was like, go that, away, leave me alone. That, <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't care what the, print, what the font is. I just want to read the story. But yeah, and he'd, you know, he'd take, you could see him, he'd take down a book and just look at it, you know, look at the font. And the very last day out I had with him, we went to the print museum just before his health began to decline. And we had a great time. I had a great time watching him uh, as he kind of went went around the machines and just uh, gazed at them. You know, he was never very nostalgic. He kind of liked the modern world, but he could you could see him. He was just absorbing his child, you know, his, his teenage years and his 
his time as a printer watching these machines. It was a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant thing to have in me. I had a great, great memory. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And uh, you talk about the, the stories, you talk about the language and the turns of phrases that come out of the industry, Roddy, in your, in your foreword. Yes, I'm sure I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not a printer I'm not a printer myself, so I'm not going to start hanging them out for you there, pretending I know more than I actually do. Okay, do you know? So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're on your own there. Uh, give me um, your favourite story, anyway. <laughs> is, one of your favourite stories, you say, is that Smashing the Glass Ceiling by Breed and Nathan. Yeah. Yeah, because it's very much a world of men and then Breed and Nathan arrives, you know, and her story is great because she went as far up to the, as far as the Supreme Court and she's a born storyteller. So she's, you know, going through the, uh, through the, if you like, the aisles of the Supreme Court in her, in her Marks and Spencer jacket yeah. to basically claim the right to apply for any job within the printing trade. And she won, you know, 20 years she was at it. And it's, you know, that in itself is worth uh, celebrating but she tells a really really great story you know you can feel it almost like a film or a good television series as you're reading it but so yeah she did smash that particular glass ceiling yeah and, and you know? these are the kind of stories that would nearly lost in this in this kind of like uh, uh, this world of print that exists in Ireland uh, Roddy Fighting Words tell us about Fighting Words well myself and Sean Love a friend of mine founded it uh, we opened up in 2009 uh, it's largely for children and teenagers. You know, we try to make creative writing as inviting and as doable and as uh, enjoyable as possible mm-hmm. and to try and present it as an alternative to school uh, away from exams and stress and homework and stuff like yeah. that, something that they want to do. But we also work with other... We work with um, people in prisons. We work with people for whom, you know, if you like, the education system wasn't very kind. And uh, we've worked with groups of uh, retired uh, people. Okay. Uh, so we've got a great book about, about written by retired dockers. It's really, really brilliant. You know, the nicknames the dockers had for each other. I can't, it's too early in the day <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's a great, it's a great that, organization. That alone is worth the money. <laughs> and it's also a terrific book. I don't think musicians ever retire. But it's a book of about and written by musicians, you know, from the show band era, really, the yeah. kind of glory days of the of the ballrooms and the show bands. And this one, then, the printer's book is our is our latest. And I'm we're launching it tonight, and I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on it. And I'm going to gaze at it in the same way my father used to gaze at the book. Yeah, you should. It is a beautiful book. I want to come back over to you, Freddie, because one of the uh, things, one of the stories that Roddy says he really enjoyed is uh, your story, Pointing Fingers. Oh, yes. <laughs> can, you, yeah. can you give us a very brief... A very brief, OK. Uh, when I was a second-year apprentice, so I was, what, 15 years of age, mm-hmm. and I was a, the afternoon, I went to Bolton Street as part of my training and into the job in the morning. And... This morning, I came in after being on Bolton Street the afternoon before, and my foreman came over, Mr. Evan came over, and he said, Freddie, I want you to do a job for me. Uh, don't go near your own machine, the Heidelberg Crown over there. There was an accident last night, yesterday evening. Please go over and wash it up and cover it up then and make sure all the, the beds, particularly where the type is, yeah. that's all cleaned and all. The uh, insurance company will be sending in an engineer afterwards. So I went over and I did it. And the next thing, I pulled up the, the guard and here I find a finger with a knuckle and sinews. And I thought, oh my God, nobody told me what had happened. You thought it was just ink you were going to clean up? Yeah, exactly. So I had a look around and I saw this 
ran big man Albert Rose across the way and I ran over to him and I'd been a boy scout and he was in the Baden Powers he'd know what to do I ran over to him and I said Mr Rose Mr Rose listen, I'm about to find this on the bed it needs to go to the hospital and he just looked at me and he, he was about six foot three or four yeah. big heavy man and he just boom flat out on his back on the ground he fainted fainted totally <laughs> 25 years later in the Irish Times mm. I started up the press and there was a problem I was driving the press at the time and I saw the and next thing bang I lost my finger the same finger the same hand but a totally different body <laughs> different thank body. god <laughs> but the best part of, of it all was uh, I had to walk off the floor organised the first aid and that I walked off the floor because the guys wouldn't start up the press as long as I was on the floor I was the boss so okay. I went out and I sat on the steps and they had rang for an ambulance ambulance arrives right and uh, I walked down to the ambulance anyway and the vans and lorries are still blocking Fleet Street because the papers hadn't started up again after the accident on the press mm -hmm. so uh, the ambulance guy the paramedic said to me uh, lie down on that stretcher I said I'm not lying down I have a pacemaker and all that and I, I said it's difficult for me if I sit up I'm okay I have a belt around my hand stopping the bleeding so let's go and he says alright and I sat in this one I didn't lie on the stretcher he wanted me to lie on so with that anyway the driver hops out closes the door hee-haw starts and as the ambulance took off the stretcher I was to lie on went flying out the back door <laughs> into the <laughs> middle of, into the middle of Fleet Street at one o'clock in the morning and you want to hear the cheer <laughs> they cheered the guys he's back he's back he's back <laughs> give, give him a knockdown as they say <laughs> exactly uh, yeah. I also yeah. highlights the dangers of the job as well oh yeah uh, some of the dangers it's, it's, it's a badge of honour Oliver a badge of honour sorry a badge, yes, I'm, a real, sorry. I'm a real yeah. printer I'm not like these compositors I'm a real printer <laughs> back over to you Harry because um, you've spent like, all of us have spent the time enjoying Con Hooligan's uh, columns especially coming up to a GA weekend but it wasn't the easiest gig was it bringing in Con, Con Hooligan's no, um. no. Uh, just before I answer that, I, I, I made a mistake earlier. I said President Mary McAleese opened. It was actually pre President Mary Robinson in 1996. Well, uh, just a, a slight slip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Con the stone Hulham. men are kind of going, yeah, that's what it's they do. What the would you expect from a yeah, yeah, There's no, yeah. no printer to check it. Yeah. Uh, Con Hoolan was a legend, probably the finest sports writer Ireland ever had. He yeah. could paint a picture with words and he had a column every uh, Monday, Wednesday and Friday in the on the back page of the evening press full length double column 20 inches uh, of of uh, sport and his view of sport and he, he really was a wonderful man yeah. having said that his writing was appalling he used to <laughs> write handwriting handwriting <laughs> yes he used to write he never n none of his stuff was ever typed mm. um but he would write it, a, a, a paragraph to a single page, sort of a 10 by 8 page uh, of newsprint, and he'd scribble out a paragraph. And when I started setting cons uh, stuff, it was like trying to decipher old hieroglyphics. But as you got used to it, you become your brain and your eye would become sort of attuned to his writing, you know, and it was easy enough to do it. Con was a beautiful man, a lovely man. He, he died in August 20. 2012 mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody did anybody be before him or since who had the status or the ability to write sport sporting articles like Khan but he also did theatre reviews and he also did an arts column as well called tributaries once a week in in the paper 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was great. And, and obviously the sub-editors then, uh, the importance of them, and that's a trade that uh, has, is really fizzling away. And as so many, uh, so many bits and pieces of this trade are kind of all disappearing. Yeah, yeah. But that's the work of the National Print Museum, isn't it, to keep all of these stories alive and the keep, idea behind keep, the book. It is, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. keep uh, the old systems alive for as long as possible, the old equipment, the old machinery, to keep it working and to show people how it, how, how it operated in those days, years ago. One of the problems we face in the print museum now is that, like the industry, the letterpress industry, the hot metal industry, that's a dying, it's nearly gone except for the Renaissance now with the artists and people like that on the museum to keep this alive. We're the last, the last men standing. Right. Uh, Three of us printed a proclamation, Alf and Billy and myself, and the two of them have passed away. Vinnie Caprani's passed away. Explain the the, the printing the proclamation thing, because it's... uh, In 2016, we printed a replica copy copies of the proclamation very successfully on a machine we have in the museum that a wharfdale which is similar to the one that uh, was used in 1916 to print the original right which is one of the great stories of well, printing, it's, it's, it? a, it's a great story and it's amazing the number of people though when they come along and they see the machine there we actually printed a uh, hundred copies on very special paper and we invited Whoever bought a copy went and went on online and immediately sold out within days. Of course, yeah. and people from Australia, America, it was unbelievable. And anybody who bought a copy, and we were trying to raise money for the museum as well. And anybody who bought a copy got an invitation to come on the day to see the replica copy being printed to the hour of the centenary. A hundred years later on our machine and we printed it and it was um, absolutely amazing to see all that the museum was full. We're actually still, believe it or not, Oliver, we're still selling copies. We have copies in the museum that we're still selling, not on the special paper. right? Okay. And people are still getting still in touch and are still so, looking for them, look, still buying them. It's absolutely amazing. And, and thanks a million, Harry Havlin and Freddie Snow for, um, you know, revisiting and, and honouring this this amazing craft because it was a craft, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so, oh, sorry, we ha- there is someone on the there is someone on the line. OK, we, we're going to go somewhere. We've Monica's on the line. Um, Monica, good morning to you. How are you, Oliver? Good morning. <laughs> Very well, thank you. We don't have a huge amount of time, but tell us, it's something you're related, or you have some connection to Freddie's finger story, is that correct? <laughs> yes, Freddie, I think it might have been my father's finger you found. It was... Oh! <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh you found the finger. Jimmy, George, come on, oh I don't God. believe well, you. I'm not sure. My poor dad lost his, his finger in a, in a machine in Doran's. In, no. uh, early eight, in the early 80s. No, this was 1963, I can this, assure you. Oh, <laughs> oh, the guy's name was Jimmy and it was in Hades oh. in the East Wall, Monica. So oh, okay. Monica, well, there were so many fingers probably, flying around. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you. But I just sent in a text, my grandfather, father, uncles, cousins. I still work in Typecraft. It's a family business. And uh, with my brothers, my cousins, my nephew. So we're still all at it. That's so, great. That's great. That's great. Yeah, Robert yeah. Robert Healy. 
we uh, my, uh, Doran's. Bill, Dor- oh, Doran's, Doran's, oh, Doran's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He knows yeah, them as well. Yeah. I do. I know. I sold printing ink for five and a half years. I know everybody. <laughs> Monica, yeah, thanks yeah, a million. Yeah, yeah, thanks yeah. a million for phoning in and uh, to, to get to the important bits. There, there's the, the print museum, obviously a guided tours Tuesdays to Fridays, twelve p.m. Saturdays at one p.m. for families. There's encouraging booking for family-oriented tour times. That's Tuesdays, Fridays, two p.m. Nationalprintmuseum.ie. Strange types and odd sorts. A peek into the world of print in Ireland is being launched this evening. Roddy Doyle, I think, is still on the line. Maybe still there. Thanks a million, Roddy. And thanks uh, you're to, welcome. Thank and you. Thanks, I really uh, enjoyed that. Absolutely amazing. And uh, when's the next book out, Roddy? Uh, September next year. Oh, September next year. Take and, it easy. But I've, sure. a, I've a version of Peter Pan set in Dublin going on in the gate at Christmas. Oh, you've, oh, really? You've got a Peter Pan yeah. in the gate going out this Christmas. Okay, very good. No yeah. printing involved there, but keep them in mind, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah put available. No, no, <laughs> no, uh, no, no printing, but lots of fairy dust. Yeah, okay, very good. Well, good luck with that. And keep in mind uh, Kelly Volume 2, because it was a phenomenal book last year, and we're all watching Kelly, who's going to be a double Olympian next year in Paris 2024. Listen, Freddie Snow Oliver. and Harry Havlin, thank you both very much for coming in. We have to go and take... I know you do. Oh, before we go, we'd like to say thanks very much. Harry and I would like to present you with this copy. That ah, you're very printed. kind. I know you have another copy. This is a special one. Upstairs. Yeah, I'm okay. very, very, I'm Thank very, you very pleased much. with that. It is a gorgeous book. And thanks a million and good, good morning to you. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back after this.